0: We are reading from the book of Zechariah. So, our pe- preaching passage this morning comes from the first chapter, verses 7 through 17. This is towards the end of the Old Testament. I will be reading starting in verse 7. On the 24th day of of the eleventh month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is God's word. Please be seated.
1: Thank you so much Kurt. I've never heard Darius pronounced like that before. Darius? Is that how they say it in America? No? Darius. Darius. Yes, that's how I would say it. But then you say Isaiah, so I'm never quite sure. Well, we're looking uh, this morning at Zachariah. And uh, we've come to the 8th, not the 8th month, the 24th day of the 11th month. So this is three months or so after the passage we looked at last week. And it's a night vision. So he's going to see now eight visions in one night. So that's, that's impressive. Even HE, you couldn't see eight visions in one night. Maybe with a long organ prelude beforehand. Um, So he was a visionary. Eight visions in one night. He had the vision thing, as George Bush put it. Was it George Bush who said the vision thing? Who said that? Sorry? Was it George Bush? Darius. Darius Darius said it. (laughs) Um, So eight visions in one night. And uh, this vision that we're looking at this evening, not this evening, this morning, is all about how God disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Both those things are going on in this vision. There are people who are comfortable who should not be, and God is disturbing them. And he's describing how he's going to do that. He's going to shake their world. And if you hear a loud rattling noise that I think has been going on throughout this morning, you can just think that as like sound effects for the shaking. He's going to shake their world, those who are comfortable but should not be. But by the same token, on the other side of the same coin, those who are disturbed but need not be, he has words of comfort. And that's what's going on throughout the vision. It's February the 15th, 519 BC. We know it with pretty much exactitude because of this 24th day, the 11th month, when it happened. February the 15th, 519. This is a long time ago. Zechariah has this vision, and the vision is all about how God disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. So let's uh, look at see how Zechariah uh, records this vision and then what it means for us. So verse 8, if you have your Bibles open... If we come to a vision, the first task is to visualize it. We need to imagine it. We need to see it in our minds to conjure up the picture of what's going on. So let's visualize it. So what's he seeing? Verse 8, he says, I saw, well, what did you see, Zechariah? Okay, a man riding on a red horse, standing among myrtle trees in the glen, behind him red sorrel, and white horses. That's essentially what he sees. So what Zachariah sees are four horses, two red, one white, one sorrel. Sorrel is a color that means a kind of reddish-brown. That's what he sees, these different kinds of horses of different colors, and they're in the glen. Uh, the glen, uh, translating here a word that means either valley Or ravine, or just a deep place. So they're somewhere down in the valley. There are the horses two red, one white, one sorrel. And uh, around them, they're in the myrtle trees. Myrtle uh, tree is a sort of very large shrub or small tree, can grow to about 10 feet high. They have green, luscious foliage and they grow uh, white aromatic flowers, a pleasant perfume. In fact, uh, our allspice is made out of ingredients of plants that are botanically connected to myrtle, and so they have a pleasant aroma. So, that's, I guess that isn't what he saw. That's maybe what he smelt. Can you smell in dreams? Perhaps you can. I'm not sure. But there's this myrtle foliage. They're in the valley. There are these horses. That's what he sees. So then he says, Okay, so what does this mean? Verse 9. What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I'm going to show you what they are. So he does. So the man who's standing among the myrtle tree answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they're not just horses. They're horses who've been on a mission and they've come back from this mission of patrolling throughout the earth and now they've returned. And uh, verse 11 what they say is, We've patrolled the earth and the earth remains at rest or is comfortable, it's at ease, it's at rest, it's quiet. That's their message. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? Remember, the 70 years is referencing this prophetic significance time period when Jeremiah had said that God's people will return after 70 years. So now the angel is saying, well, look, it's 70 years that's, that's happened. Where is this comfort, this prosperity, this blessing that was promised. In other words, here are God's people and they're disturbed. There's the earth and it's comfortable. And the angel who talked to me said, cry out. So there's a message that that comes from God. God answered gracious and comforting words, verse 13, then the angel gives Zechariah a message. So, this vision has a message. Verse 14, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Now, stop that word jealous. When we read the word jealous in the Bible, we tend to think what we mean in common conversation today by jealous, which means something envious, something negative. No one wants to be jealous. It feels wrong, how can God be jealous? But in the Bible, the idea of jealousy has a, a fuller and richer meaning. It, it implies the kind of protective love that comes with an exclusive relationship, so it 's not envious in a sort of negative how we use the word jealous today, but it's protective. This, these are my people. I have a protective, exclusive love for them, like a husband for a wife or a wife for a husband. There's an exclusive intimacy between God and His people. He has a jealous love for them. We might just say a zealous love for them. And I, uh, verse 15, God speaking, am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, or the earth that is comfortable. For why I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. So remember, God's people got into exile. That was part of God's plan, part of His discipline for their sin, for their idolatry. But what God is now saying is that the nations had seized on that opportunity and they'd gone above and beyond what God had intended. He'd intended them going to go into exile, yes, but they had pillaged and abused and raped. There had been war crimes. They had furthered the disaster. And God is angry. He, so, like the word jealousy, when we use the word angry, we, we almost always use it perhaps not always, but most often use it in a way that is something that you should not be. You should not be angry. But when God is described as being angry, what it's talking about is His righteous set disposition against evil and injustice. God is going to stand up for what's right and correct what's wrong. That's what's meant by His, his anger. And so he's angry with the nations for what they've done. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem and with mercy. And then verse 17, with overflowing prosperity. These, verse 13, are the gracious and comforting words. So here is the earth. It's at ease or comfortable, but it should not be. And God has a message to disturb them. And here is God's people that is deeply disturbed because they're not sure what God's doing and where's the answer to His promise and what happened after these 70 years and what's going on, Lord, and God has a word of deep comfort for His disturbed people. God disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Now, there are images here that uh, are used that we need to dig into a little bit to try and understand a bit more what this uh, vision is saying. Remember, there are these four horses, they've got different colors, they're in the glen and uh, they are standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and all of these elements are intended to symbolize and underline and evoke and create emotions around this message of disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. And, and But what are these images meaning? And when we lean into, this is a prophetic vision with apocalyptic language that is that is fiercely visual, almost surreal at times, imagery, we need to bear in mind a couple of interpretive principles. The first interpretive principle is what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. That means that Scripture itself is understandable in its main meaning, but there are elements of Scripture that can be a little hard to grasp. So, we should expect when we go through this these images here, this apocalyptic prophetic set of images, that the main meaning of it should be fairly easy to grasp. God disturbs the comfortable, and He comforts the disturbs, disturbed. But there are other parts of it that may be a little tricky to understand, and that is what we should expect from this doctrine that is derived from the Scriptures, the, that we can expect the perspicuity of Scripture, that we can understand it that the Bible should be in our own language, that when we come to the Bible with, with humble hearts to hear what God has to say, we can expect that, that, that we will grasp it, that as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, that we should be able to hear what Jesus is saying to us clearly in the Scriptures, but that shouldn't lead us to be surprised when there are parts of the Bible that are difficult and complicated. As Peter said about the Apostle Paul, uh, the, uh, some of what the Apostle Paul writes is difficult and, and ignorant and unstable people distort it to their own devices. There are parts of Scripture that are hard to grasp, but the main meaning, my sheep hear my voice and, 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 and they will follow me, the main meaning we should be able to grasp, the perspicuity of Scripture. The other principle that we need to have in mind as we interpret this is the multiple horizons of the prophetic in the Old Testament. If you fail to understand this, you will frequently misinterpret prophecy in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophecy does not have a single horizon. It has multiple horizons. The prophet, from his standing point, is shown a vision of the future, and he looks out and he sees the mountain peak, the first horizon But anyone who's climbed mountains will know that when you start to climb, you get to what you think is the summit, you realize there's a further summit beyond that. And you get to that summit, and you realize there's yet a further summit. So with Old Testament prophecies, like this one, there's an immediate fulfillment about God having returned to Jerusalem, but then there's another fulfillment when Jesus returns to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and dies and rises again and sends His Spirit, and yet there's a further fulfillment to these prophecies that will happen when Jesus returns again. Those two principles, the perspicuity of Scripture and the triple horizon of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the immediate fulfillment, the fulfillment in Jesus' first coming and the fulfillment in His second coming need to be borne in mind as we try and understand this apocalyptic Imagery. How do we understand it? Remember, there are these horses. The horses are highly symbolic because it's written at the time of the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire had a set of a system of messaging built upon relays of horses that was well known, famous for being particularly fast and global. And so, the ancient hero historian Herodotus describes how the Persian messaging system was the fastest known to man. He said, no mortal moves as fast as those Persian horses, this Persian messaging system. So here, being described, the imagery, these horses aren't just, you know, here's a horse, here's a horse. These horses are part of the Persian messaging system it's evoking that idea. Now, we, we don't use horses to send messages. We, we send an email or a text message or something like that. But behind our messages, the actual email we send, there's a system. And that system is built upon satellites and the internet, the GPS system, the global positioning system that every, the architecture of our communication is built upon. And similarly, in the ancient world, there wasn't a GPS, there was a Persian messaging system a PMS if you like and what God is saying here by describing this PMS, the GPS of the ancient world, the Persian messaging system is he's saying to Zachariah Zachariah, I have my GPS I know everything Zachariah I see everything I've got my horses and they're patrolling And these horses are in the glen. Why are they in the glen? Well, some scholars say that the reason why they're in the glen is just because myrtle trees grew in valleys, and that's why they're in the glen. It's possible, but I think almost certainly because this word for glen also means valley or ravine or just deep place, the reason why the horses are in the deep place is it symbolizes the feeling of God's people at the time, they are in the deep place, they are down, they are in the depths, they are not on the heights, they are disturbed. And these horses have these different colors, red, white, sorrel, which as I said is a kind of reddish-brown. Why the different colors? Been lots of different opinions down through the years. Uh, uh, Rashi, who was the medieval rabbinic uh, author that I quoted last week, Rashi thought that the the different colours here represented uh, war for the red, victory for the white, and the sorrel was the sort of in between stage. If you if, if, if you if you like, I suppose that's possible. It, didn't persuade me when I was reading it. Meredith Klein, a well-known Old Testament scholar from America, would have said that these colors instead represent the flaming fire, that they're meant to symbolize. The the, the red and the white is meant to conjure up images of, of flames of fire, a sort of vibrancy to these horses, and again, that's possible. I didn't find it particularly persuasive. I'm not actually 100% certain that I know what these colors mean. I think they mean something because they're very specifically described. My best insight at the moment comes from the word red, which I find to be fascinatingly connected to the word for jealousy, this passionate, zealous love for God's people. The two words are at root etymologically connected And therefore, I think that perhaps what God is saying through these colors of this GPS, this global messaging system, what what he's saying is not only is he sovereign, I know everything, I see everything. What he's saying is, and that sovereignty is fueled and fired by a passionate love for you, my people. There's a zeal behind it for his people. What about the myrtle, the myrtle trees? Well, that's fairly clear. The myrtle trees were used in the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament. You can read about this in the book of Leviticus. The Feast of Booths was the most celebratory and joyful feast. It came at the end of harvest time looking forward to the, the rainy season and the expectation of prayers that there would be rain and, and blessing coming from God, and there's a sense of celebration, the Feast of Booths. It, it commemorated their traveling through the wilderness and how God provided for them even though they didn't have a fixed Home and the the booths were built with various trees, but including myrtle branches and myrtle trees. And when in Nehemiah, the first feast that they celebrate again is the Feast of Booths because it's especially celebratory when they come back from exile and they use their explicitly told Nehemiah chapter 8, myrtle branches, it's a celebration. And then Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, when he's talking about this time. When God will restore His people, He says, Isaiah 55 verse 12, He says, "'You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle.'" And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign, this symbol, the myrtle that shall not be cut off. So, this myrtle is saying that now, actually, my God is saying to His people, my disturbed people, actually, you are entering into a time of extraordinary blessing and prosperity. It's not the weeping time. It's not the ravine time. It's not the deeps time. It's the myrtle time. That's the time that you're living in, and you should be think. It's a prophecy of hope. And so then, when God, through the angel, tells Zechariah what to preach or what to cry out, what to herald, he says that he's had this exceeding love, this special zeal for his people, and yet he has an exceeding anger for those who have abused his people. He's going to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed And then he says, verse 16, "'Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem.'" Remember, we saw last week that the prophet throughout Zechariah is saying, "'Return to God, and he will return to you.'" And God is saying through his prophet Zechariah, "'I have returned to Jerusalem. God's people are back in my city. It may not be everything it's going to be yet, but I have returned.'" And he says, "'My house shall be built in it,' declares the Lord of hosts. "'It's going to happen. Here's another horizon.'" and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. In other words, the measuring line that's used to measure the size of the city. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, in the last chapters of Ezekiel, it's described the city and the temple and all all this that's going to take place, and what God is saying here is the measuring line will be stretched out. In other words, it's going to be so prosperous, so blessed by me, you're going to need a bigger measuring system to even be able to quantify it. The measuring line is stretched, and then he says, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, comfort his people, and again choose Jerusalem, again, repeated four times for emphasis again and again and again and again. God's going to disturb those nations that are at ease. He has a message for them, a message for them. He's deeply angry with them. There will be justice that will come for the abuser and the, the war criminal and the, the person who is outside of God's blessing and his covenant and refuses to come to him for forgiveness. There is There is going to be justice. They may not feel it. They're at ease. They think everything's fine. But there's a message of disturbance for those. And at the same time, there's a message of comfort for his people who are disturbed, who are saying, God, where is your blessing? Where is this time that has been promised? I have returned to Jerusalem. And there's going to be Blessing again and again and again and again. And these horizons of the prophecy for when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, riding not on a horse, but on a donkey, and dies, and rises again and sends his spirit. And then one day He will return again. God disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Of course, the the big question then as we come towards the end is how do we tell which part of the message we should receive? Typically what happens is those who need to be disturbed remain feeling at ease and those who need to be comforted remain feeling disturbed because if you have a tender conscience, you tend to always receive the disturbing element of a message like this. And if you're someone who feels completely at ease with your life, you tend to receive the comforting element. You tend to hear the piece that already fits your own mentality and temperament. How do we receive the right medicine for our own lives? And the answer is there's a diagnostic tool embedded in this text, and the diagnostic tool is how we treat God's people. The nations were at ease, but they had mistreated God's people. God's people had come back to Jerusalem, were seeking to rebuild it, and were feeling disturbed. They needed to be comforted. Of course, what happened to Saul in the New Testament when he was persecuting God's people? Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because God has a passionate love for His people. They are His people. He's so involved with in them that when you persecute God's people, you're persecuting Him. And therefore, nations who move against God's people, who set up systems and military and political maneuvers and subterfuge and backroom dealings to marginalize and repress and suppress God's people, you watch out. You may feel like you're at ease. You may feel like Nothing can touch you. You may feel like you've got all the money in the world, all the power in the world, but you watch out. You may feel like you're at ease, but actually, God's gonna, God is a disturbing message for you. Though you feel at ease, you're asleep. You're asleep on the Titanic. Watch out. Get right with God before it's too late. God is the king of the universe. He runs the global Messaging system. He really knows what's going on. You kings. You emperors. You powerful people who. Come against God's people. Zechariah is told. Is is told to preach. You watch out. This is God's people. And he has a, a zeal for them. Authorities in dictatorial regimes who move against God's people, you watch out. God controls the universe, not you. You politicians who wish to maneuver and manipulate so that you can marginalize God's people who believe in God's word, you watch out. One day you'll have to stand before the king of kings and the Persian empire is gone. Gone. And God's kingdom will be built. You watch out. You come to him before it's too late. You're at ease, but you should not be. You should be disturbed. Get right with God. You're asleep on the Titanic. and then God's people who love Him and love His people, His church, who are invested in His people and His church, who long to see this prosperity for His people. You who are disturbed, you who watch the evening news and as they say about the evening news, the newscaster begins by saying "Good evening," and then immediately tells you why it is not, and you wonder what god 's doing, and you wonder whether it 's all going to turn out all right, and you 're wondering about who 's going to provide for your health or your your bank balance or your relational needs or your family needs and your 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 being faithful to his people and you're being faithful to his word you love it, you're not perfect but you love Jesus and you love his people and you're feeling disturbed okay be comforted receive the comfort of his word sounds like someone needs to receive some comfort right now He will return again and again and again with blessing. He's saying, I don't see that. It's a story uh, that was written about a missionary who was killed. In the Chinese regime in 1900, the husband and wife and the children were all killed, and their biography was written. And in that biography, the husband and wife described their attitude to life as they'd given up so much to follow Jesus, and what they said was, God removes the trinkets, the little things, the unimportant things. He removes the trinkets from our hands that He might fill our hands with His treasures. And The world doesn't see, but you have His Spirit. You have His Word, and one day He will return again. Our Lord God, we do pray that You would help us to uh, live in the light of the truth of these comforting words, those of us who know You and love You and Your people. And for those, Lord, who stand against your work and your way, we pray, Lord, that they would be disturbed until they come to know you. Stir up this morning those here who don't yet know you, so they will not be able to live at ease. So that when they go home and turn on Netflix and try to numb the pain, until they're comfortably numb. They'll find nothing they enjoy, nothing they like. And when they turn t- to alcohol, they'll find it doesn't work anymore. They can't get at ease, and they cannot find comfort. Lord, stir up, disturb those who don't yet know you and for those of us who do. We pray, Lord, you give us fresh comfort, joy, peace, hope. For we pray it in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.